Let's Cover That podcast is brought to you by CMNF Group, professional liability services for over 200 healthcare professions. Visit our website at cmfgroup.com slash podcast for more info. Hey, everybody. We have a new episode of Let's Cover That with my co-host. Antonina Agruza. And today we have with us Damayanti Dipayana, the CEO of Manatee. Dama, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Of course. So Dama, tell us a little bit about your background and your foray into healthcare. All right. So, I mean, background, I try to keep it somewhat short, but I am originally from the Netherlands and I went to, I lived in Europe pretty much my entire life, went to university in London and South America, and then finally kind of made my way over to New York City about 11, 12 years ago. Um, but really actually worked in finance first and then worked in kind of tech startups, worked for a company that was founded by four guys from Google. And that was one of the reasons why I made my way over to the U.S. to build out essentially operations in um, New York and then San Francisco, L.A. And then why or at least how did I venture my way into healthcare? It was a combination of a few things. I think personally... I always make the joke that moving to the U.S., I had two really big culture shocks, and it was dating and healthcare, both of them very different from where I came from. So when I was actually building the team in the U.S., one of the things that struck me was just how complicated it even was for my team to get health insurance. And I mean, all these healthcare brokers would explain it to me and started talking slower. And I was like, listen, I can talk English. I just don't understand what you mean with deductibles and co-pays and Yada, yada, yada. So I think it became really apparent first that it was an industry where there were a lot of inefficiencies that were kind of like ripe for disruption. And then I got really intrigued by that just generally. And then the second piece was really, I grew up with a brother who had a variety of mental health issues. And I just saw how hard it was throughout that whole journey for him to receive care that felt really good to him and to my family. And my parents were really struggling. And I never really thought about it in that way until I had kids myself. So I had my first kid in New York, um, second in LA, third in Denver. But I think that was really for me a catalyst when I was like, all right, I really recognized kind of the opportunity within healthcare, specifically for mental health for kids, considering it really wasn't touched for like 60 years. Yeah, so so Dama, why don't you, you know, kind of hopping into that with families and children and their mental health needs, you kind of walk us through what what is Manatee and how does that kind of bring you in from your personal experience now into this wonderful business you have moving? Yeah, for sure. So I think there were two really big insights for me that has that have been the foundation of Manatee. There's one, I don't think people recognize how hard it is being a parent or how hard parenting is and how important actually parents are for the well-being of their kids. I think parents often underestimate the influence that they have on their children in a variety of ways. So I think that was one that I don't think mental health care in general takes real consideration of if is just supporting parents throughout this whole process and the second piece that was very apparent throughout the pandemic and I think we intuitively know it's just like the importance of the depth and quality of our relationships so going to Manatee what we've built today was really I recognized we needed to build a mental health care model in which it's not that the child is the identified patient it's actually the family because 
the two things are true. It's really hard to be a parent and they're incredibly influential in the well-being of their kids. And actually the relationships within the family unit are the most important. Like you can throw anxiety medication or ADHD medication to kids as much as you want. But if you don't actually fix the foundation and figure out like, okay, how do actually people interact with one another? It's really hard to actually improve the emotional well-being of the whole family and of kids. So that's kind of what we build with those two key things in the foundation. So today what we do is we have like this full wraparound service where you download our app, um, you basically work together, we take you through all of these different courses, and then you can interact with licensed therapists for child sessions, for family sessions. We have parent coaches who are amazing, who support the parents specifically um, in their kind of confidence and feeling effective with in their parenting skills. And then we have also peer groups, recognizing that there's so many things that you kind of want to walk through with someone who's been there before. Say, for example, you're a parent who's adopted a child. That's a very unique, specific scenario in which, again, like a therapist can be incredibly helpful, but being able to talk with someone who's going through the same things and the same challenges, I think is really valuable. Yeah, that's amazing. And to your point, you know, about parenting, being so difficult, you know, what kind of challenges does that provide um, your providers? You know, what challenges, uh, what are the challenges of providing mental health care to children and their families? Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think it's recognized within the industry and there's a lot of research supporting that actually family-based therapy is incredibly effective, if not the most effective kind of modality to supporting children. The difficulty is is that families are complex i don't think that i i know that generally we think about a mom and a dad and a white picket fence and maybe two kids and that's actually the vast minority right like it's that's not actually what families look like in the united states for us about 70 percent of our families are single households intergenerational households blended families so families have probably separated and gotten back together with got remarried have kind of step siblings um, or just families who are going through separation or divorce today. So I think the complexity that comes with it in understanding who needs to be involved in these sessions, what are the relationships looking like? Um, you know, we have grandparents joining sessions, step parents, boyfriends, girlfriends, partners. And I think being able to have your company set up operationally and also legally with consent and everything else to wrap around all of the different like stakeholders in a kid's life. I think that's historically really complicated. It's like herding cats that a therapist in a private practice can't really do. Um, and I think that's also the power of virtual in our sense. It's like, even if dad lives in a different state, we can still kind of like wrap them in the care model. Well, and also, you know, Donna, you, you hit on something is just the various stakeholders. And I think it's really cool how you guys kind of, you know, push yourselves as, hey, the number one way to solve the problem is for care is actually through the family. You know, that's mm -hmm. really like the first step, not, you know, these other items that people kind of use after. It's kind of should be there first with the family. But when you have that, set up and then all the stakeholders, especially if they're virtually, you know, in different states for children, how does that work with goal setting? You know, it, so now you're taking in the boyfriend and then the blended family and you have all in, it's intergenerational and you're in different geographic locations, which we all probably know people 
who are going through these things, how do you then say, like, I don't know if people know that. Like, when you get into a therapist, you know, it's just, it's hard to quantify, like, what's the goal? Like, how do you get to the goal? You know, and it's probably yeah. an ongoing goal and continuum. So what does that look like? It's a, yeah, it's a really good question. So the way, and actually goal setting was also part of our foundation. So the way that we look at it is before someone starts in their care journey, we actually do a full family assessment. So our assessments aren't singular. We're not just like, hey, what's going on? What's wrong with the kid, right? I think also historically the model is really designed to like fix the child, so to speak. And we're really focusing on, okay, what's going on with the family. So recognizing that we evaluate essentially what's obviously going on with the child, but also what's going on with the parents and caregivers and also how different caregivers essentially assess their own child. So how a dad, and I'm going to be super stereotypical here, but how a dad evaluates their kid is very different versus how a mom evaluates our kids. So oftentimes a mom will see the issues as and the symptoms as more serious. And oftentimes that's because the mom spends more time with the child. So it's really fascinating to already like see these differences. So we take all of that data into consideration. And then actually after that assessment, we build a six week care plan. And that care plan actually has different goals for different people. So it might be that um, you know, there's a lot of kind of anxiety and stress in the household. So we may work with the kid on actually coping tools and journaling and all of those things to kind of untangle their own thoughts and feelings. And it might be that we're working with mom and dad to um, kind of like reduce their own anxiety and stress. So it might be that a goal is for, you know, dad to take a walk every single day for 15 minutes and just like do something for themselves. And the same, you know, so... We basically set different goals for different stakeholders throughout a six-week care plan. And then we track them and keep them accountable. So we can actually check in and say like, hey, you know, you didn't do your goals. Talk to us what's going on and um, also really highlight the effectiveness of them. So that's really and then every six weeks, it basically starts over again. So then after six weeks, they have another full family assessment in which we understand, OK, what are, what are the improvements? What's working? What's not working? And then we adjust our goal setting um, system and go from there. What is, just curious, Dama, based on the goal setting, what, what does that look like for adherence versus people who are in the brick and mortar therapy sessions? I mean, because that's, that's always yeah, anybody you talk to, it's like cash based, it's kind of segmented, it's hard to get people scheduled. Um, do you find the adherence rate and your opportunity to really get people to move forward in that six-week goal setting with the mm -hmm. therapist is like more meaningful and, and just improve by just all the processes that you're all building out? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a variety of things that we do within our own system to make it super engaging for kids, teens, and parents, right? Like, I think that's one. The second piece is historically, I don't know if you've ever gone to therapy, but sometimes your kid will get a worksheet and like, I don't... For me, it doesn't mean even make it out of the car, right? Like even if I think about like paper homework, it like gets lost somewhere. So I think there's a real benefit of just having everything digitally. And then it's just being really thoughtful about how do you make it engagement engaging? How do you 
really get the kids on board? How do you make it so that it's easy to do kind of in your day-to-day life? And what we see is that on average, a family will complete 12 activities between every single session. So if you think about that, like within a week, like that's so high and that's an average that, and the activities can range from achieving a goal, writing in your journal, doing a self-care exercise in our app, or, you know, reading a, a lesson and completing a lesson or a course. So there's a lot of engagement in between. And what we then see is actually an incredibly high retention rate. So our retention rate within our six week program is 93%. So if you think historically, I mean, if you look at a community mental health center, the average number of sessions that an individual patient will have is about two and a half, maybe like there's a really high drop off. So I think, um, you know, having that retention rate because there's such high engagement then also impacts obviously our outcomes. So we see really great outcomes about 3x versus traditional care and seeing significant clinical reduction in symptoms. So I think it's all about making it engaging and actually helping parents to make it part of their day to day and kids because it's life's busy. Yeah, I love that. And I think it makes so much sense. You know, you think about the mental health of a child or even the parent and, you know, sometimes having to physically get up and go to the therapist and sit in their office, that alone adds to the level of anxiety and stress and you know, am I getting there on time? Am I going to hit traffic? You know, am I late to the appointment? Like all of these things just make whatever they're going through that much harder. And I'm sure that the success rate, you know, a part of that is being in the comfort of your own home and being in your space and somewhere that's comfortable. So um, really love what you guys are doing. Before we wrap up the episode, I'd love to ask one more question. Um, Through your lens, where do you see the future of mental health care going? Oh, that's a great question. I think, I think there's going to be a few things. So the first real constraint that I see within the market is just, there's not the supply of provide like licensed providers is not sufficient to meet the demand within the market. So, and I think also it's really interesting historically when you look at insurance, it's like we are only reimbursing for, you know, those engagement, those one-on-one fee-for-service models with a licensed provider. I think we're now coming to the recognition that one, we're not gonna like that's not gonna fly for that much longer. So it means that insurers and providers are thinking about more kind of what are different interactions that are also helping the mental well-being of someone that isn't necessarily dependent on having those licensed providers which kind of feeds into the second point is I think it's really interesting to recognize, okay, what is the evidence around, you know, for example, peer support and coaching and, you know, this digital interventions and digital therapeutics. I mean, there's a variety of things where, again, I think every, I always say like every parent, every family needs support. Not every family needs a licensed therapist. Those are actually very different things. So I think it's like really being more creative around what does a care model, an effective care model looks like and who should provide care. And I think we're getting more and more creative around this. Um, and then the final point is like with that kind of innovation and creativity, I think there's going to be a lot more um, emphasis on like what evidence-based looks like. I, you know, CBT was designed in the sixties when you could smoke in planes, right? Like the life of our families and of us as individuals is so different 
So I think we're also going to be a lot more thoughtful about, okay, what does evidence-based care actually mean and how do we assess that? Which I think is a really interesting piece too. I always have like a love-hate relationship with, um, you know, just like filling out a survey essentially. So I think the way that we're going to evaluate is someone getting better. It's not just going to be based on on the standard assessments like the PHQ-9 to get seven. And I'm really intrigued at seeing things like voice biometrics coming out, kind of your um, your interactions with your mobile phone and social media. I think there's so many different markers and even like biomarkers, right? There's so many different markers to get a better and more in-depth understanding of is someone actually getting better? I think there's going to be a lot in that space too. So those are, I think we have to be creative because, you know, there's not that much stretch in, in, the, in the workforce anymore. Yeah, and I think, I think to that point, I think the creativity really comes from folks like you hopping into the marketplace versus expecting somebody who's been entrenched in it for a long time. It's, you know, you kind of need more of like a natural entrepreneur coming into the space and kind of forcing the rest of the team to kind of start moving in the right direction to get more collaboration. Because like you said, that two and a half, you know, uh, appointment setting, you know, when you start thinking about the legality of mental health parity with health insurers and how that, you know, has troubling, you know, factors, even with the Affordable Care Act kind of pushing it more and more. And it's like people still aren't getting enough care. And it's just, it's, uh, yeah, it's really interesting, you know, leveraging that evidence-based model, like you're saying, and what is that going to look like and who's going to be able to drive that forward for us. So thank you so mm -hmm. much for hopping on and giving us your insights on it. For sure. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Dama. And that's another episode of Let's Cover That. Mm -hmm.